Depending on who you are, what sorts of news and other content you engage with, and what kind of work you do, artificial intelligence might be just a whisper on the horizon, periodically murmured about by your kids or techie niece, maybe a friend who's really into computer things, or it might have taken over your newsfeed, your newsletter list, even your hobbies. AI has been around for decades in its modern form, but recent leaps in the capabilities wielded by LLM, large language model-based permutations of this software, which were already on display in impressive but not mainstream ways over the past few years, really landed in the common consciousness and news cycle beginning at the very end of 2022, when a company called OpenAI released a chatbot called ChatGPT that blew everyone's collective mind for the next several weeks, and a regular pitter-patter of new developments based on that model and similar technologies that were already in development and at various stages of use within other tech companies started landing soon after. Basically, no one working in this space wanted to be seen as a laggard, and OpenAI, in releasing a not-quite-ready-but-still-very-impressive chatbot, which could do all sorts of nifty things that other previous products were not able to do as convincingly, forced everyone's hand, and the public response to that still uncanny valley, but less so, more useful, more realistic output-making software, showed entities like Google, which invented the LLM architecture most of these new tools are based on, and like Facebook and Snapchat and everyone else, they realized that they needed to drop everything else they were doing and get their behind-the-scenes next-step projects they didn't think were ready or useful to anyone out the door, pronto, lest they be left behind. The flood of new tools and projects sparked by that initial chatbot release has been just overwhelming. The number of news items and press releases in that space alone every single day has been astounding to see. And seeing the collection of new AI-based newsletters and podcasts and other such media products trying to keep up has been funny, but also a bit alarming, as for folks like me who are keen to keep up on this sort of thing out of interest and due to the possibility that something new might arise that would be genuinely useful for me, it's kind of like trying to take a sip of water from a fire hose. There's just too much to keep up with. And thus, it is tricky to figure out which of these new offerings are the real deal, which are mostly hype, which will stick around, and which are just stepping stones to the next mind-blowing whatever. Just a few days ago, it was announced that there will be a new Beatles song released soon. And Paul McCartney gave several interviews in which he gushed about the AI software that was used to extract the late John Lennon's voice from an old demo track. A demo that, until this software was applied, was thought to be too broken up and low quality to be used. I've personally been using a relatively cheap piece of AI-driven software to quickly remove echo from my audio recordings, even audio recorded in untreated spaces, and a collection of new tools from companies like Google and Adobe are allowing users of their products to easily remove things from photos, add things to photos, and expound upon existing images and artwork, imagining what might be just beyond the frame, and filling in gaps based on how it parses and processes what it is given. 
These are largely free or cheap tools if you're already paying for some other piece of software, and that availability has made them pervasive in a short period of time. Some are being used for their novelty factor, filling in an expanded version of the Mona Lisa, for instance, mostly for laughs on social media, though in other cases these tools are being used for profit, sometimes to make convincing scams, replicating someone's voice, and having this voice call the replicated person's family members in a seeming panic, asking for money, and in others creating scam-like products, like the automated generation of t-shirts, the graphics swiped from social media posts, and automagically applied to products via print-on-demand websites. The sites allowing these AI-powered apps to basically steal images, create products based on those images for free, printable on-demand to t-shirts and mugs and things like that, and then they can profit in the long tail, even if just a few people end up buying one of the bazillions of products that they automatically generate in this way. ChatGPT recently introduced plugins, which allows their now well-known chatbot to interact directly with other apps, basically helping their AI use other tools, including other AI tools for specific tasks, making it more of an operating system-like interface than just a chatbot. But we're also beginning to see business models for these bots, alongside the pay-per-use model that many of them utilize at the moment. Snapchat, for instance, has been looking into injecting sponsored links, ads basically, into their chatbot results. And Bing, the search engine owned by Microsoft, which stole a march on Google in applying this type of AI-powered chatbot to its search results, has been doing the same. Alongside the concerns that AI will enable bioterrorists to quickly develop new frightening weapons, and that AI will lead to a technological singularity in which a super brilliant piece of conscious software wipes out humanity then, we are also starting to see concerns about the monetization efforts related to these bots and similar software because they are quite capable at many things, and that capability, if paired with the right or wrong, depending on how you look at it, business model, could lead to some toxic, dangerous incentives that might then lead to negative outcomes for all sorts of people and industries. What I'd like to talk about today is one such outcome that we are already seeing because of a, thus far at least, less reported upon AI-related business model that seems to be growing into a next-step concern for many non-tech industries as well. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. At the beginning of June 2023, the lead investor in forum-centric social network Reddit's most recent round of funding, Fidelity, announced that it had cut the estimated worth of its stake in Reddit by about 41% since 2021 when it made said investment. It also recently cut its estimate for several other tech world investments, including a nearly $8.63 million stake it held in Twitter, which was marked down to about $6.55 million as of April 28th of this year, more than $2 million less, which is about a quarter less than around half a year previous. This trend of knocking down the valuation of previously made investments, especially in previously high-flying tech world entities, is not limited to fidelity and not limited to these two social networks. 
Companies of all shapes and sizes that would have previously been called growth stocks, meaning stocks and companies that are generally assumed to be building major moats around whatever they're making, which will allow them to earn huge multiples for their investors at some point in the future, but which in their early days are expected to burn through money and seldom earn much of a profit. Such companies are shrinking fast, and there's been a wave of bankruptcies and consolidations in some sectors while others have mostly seen a battening-down-the-hatches sort of mentality as economic conditions constrict, available investment dollars dry up, and company heads realize they're going to have to make do with what they've got and with whatever profits they can pull in. Thus, we have seen Twitter, under newish owner Elon Musk, fire the majority of its employees and avoid paying for as much as possible, including rent, which looks to be leading to their being kicked out of an office in Colorado and which is kicking up lawsuits all over the place as they are refusing to pay their landlords and service providers and former employees to whom they owe money. The sequence of events is likely relevant to a recent series of happenings over at Reddit, where in mid-June, the CEO of the company held an AMA, an Ask Me Anything, session on the network to answer questions about a recently announced change to the company's API policy, and his answers did not have the intended effect, assuming the intended effect was to calm people. Basically, an API is a means of connecting two pieces of software, and when applied to social networks, it generally means a method by which you can tap into the network's information or tools in various ways. So you might use an API for Twitter to build an app that allows you to post and read tweets, or you might use it to tap into Twitter data for research purposes. Reddit has an API that has long been free to use by anyone, and that has meant the platform has had a thriving community of external app development. Many people who use Reddit regularly use apps like Apollo to engage with it, rather than the buggy, not-too-great Reddit app made by Reddit itself. They do the same thing, but Apollo tends to be better. The major change to the API that was announced in April was that the company would start charging for its use, which is not uncommon throughout the tech world, but has never been the case for Reddit. What the CEO then clarified during that AMA was the price, which, according to the maker of Apollo, would be exorbitant and would cost him, just to keep the app going, something like $20 million a year. The makers of other Reddit API-using apps also complained, saying that they, like the maker of Apollo, would not be able to continue functioning with these changes. And the CEO of Reddit said during this AMA, basically, them's the breaks, sorry, but we need to charge for this, so that's just how it's going to have to be. In response to what many perceived to be a rude brush-off by the CEO, Redditors around the network decided to protest, and that led to the shutdown for several days of some of the platform's biggest subreddits, its biggest subject-focused forums, basically. At its peak, this protest saw more than 8,000 subreddits go dark for new members, for people who were not already signed up to be part of them, which had a pretty significant impact on a lot of people, even those who don't use Reddit directly very frequently, because Reddit responses have become high-ranking results in Google search pages and are often the best results for some types of recommendations and answers to questions in particular, since they tend to be crowdsourced. Thus, this was noticed by a lot of people, but the CEO was apparently unmoved by all this negative attention. 
Leaked emails and other communications from Reddit indicated that he assured the company's staff that all this hubbub would pass, and soon, and he was not anticipating any serious issues beyond those three days of planned protest. That also did not go over well with many Redditors, and some decided, screw it, we will just keep everything dark until they step back from the ledge and backtrack on these devastating API changes that will kill all of these apps and other tools that we love. Moderators of the subreddits that have gone dark in protest have reportedly been threatened by the company, which said, in essence, that they are breaking the rules by doing what they're doing, so they'd better stop soon, lest the forums they control be handed off to someone else. And three of the network's biggest subreddits have come back online following that threat, but they have done so in a somewhat protesty way. They took a vote of their forum members about what should be done, and they decided in a very Reddit fashion to open things back up, but to only allow media featuring the British-American host of the HBO comedy news talk show last week tonight, John Oliver. So the pics-focused Reddit will only allow photos of John Oliver. The GIFs-focused Reddit will only allow GIFs of him. And the Awe Reddit, which typically features all sorts of cute content, will only allow adorable content featuring John Oliver and an anime-styled stuffed animal version of him, which is adorable, called Chi-John. There are some overt rationales for this sequence of events, including the fact that Reddit HQ now wants to make their app, the one that people don't like, central to using the platform. And they've been pushing a bunch of updates to try to make it more pleasant to use in order to achieve that end, and reportedly, killing off their biggest outside competition, like Apollo, might be an intentional part of that effort as well. Another is that like Twitter, with its firing of pretty much everyone and stiffing its landlords, Reddit is scrambling to save money and make money in an environment in which they can't just do another fundraising round if they burn through all their cash. Being fiscally responsible after a period of not having to do so is a tricky pivot to make, and this might be one indication that they are trying to find money wherever they can in previously unmonetized aspects of their product like having more control over displaying ads in their app and charging for the use of their API. But the background concern here, and this is something that Twitter has been making moves to position themselves appropriately for as well, is that AI of the kind that's becoming dominant requires huge bodies of training data. And a lot of that data today is just scraped from the internet, pulling from websites, including social networks like Twitter, and Reddit, gobbling up all of their words and images and other types of media. What a lot of folks are realizing in these spaces is that if the AI companies ever want to get on the right side of the law, to go legit, and a lot of them do, especially as the regulatory hammer starts to come down in more countries, if they want to avoid endless waves of copyright lawsuits from their efforts to scrape all that data for free and using it then in their AI product, they are going to need to pay someone for said content. And if you are Twitter or Reddit, two companies that by their very nature generate just a silly quantity of human-produced content every second of every day, that means you could be staring at a massive payday and perhaps even an ongoing relationship in which you provide human-generated content from your network for the artificial intelligence software of tomorrow. And the companies making such software would have to keep throwing money at you. So while today many of these companies make money by selling our data, 
our engagement, our relationships, the things we like and click on and who we know and everything else that we do on these platforms to marketing interests, this would open up a whole new channel of revenue for them as they could sell all the things we write, all the photos we share, all the videos we broadcast to these large language model companies, which rely upon collections of billions upon billions of such writings and photos and videos to do what they do. And we're seeing more and more of these things, which require bigger and bigger bodies of such data to function and improve. What we seem to have here, then, is a race between different types of tech and related entities, all scrambling to reposition themselves for a world in which this content is valued differently, much more highly. And they all want to make sure they've got models trained, content aggregated and labeled and bundled appropriately, but also legal control over these new raw materials, this new coin of the realm in this new set of economic circumstances. And that means the models themselves, but also the libraries of content necessary to get those models up to speed for different purposes. This is where the venture capital money is going now, and this is where all the tech companies eyeballing that money and all of the companies that help produce different sorts of human-created content of different shapes and sizes are trying to make sure they end up so they don't have to lean on austerity-focused business models for any serious amount of time. book I'd like to recommend today is called The Story of Russia by Orlando Figgis. This book provides a deep, well-researched, but still somewhat narrative history of the country of Russia and the different governing entities that have ruled over it over the years. And it's a really good baseline from which to start understanding what is happening in the country today, because many of the things that we see focused upon in terms of their international diplomacy, in terms of what they believe their people want, and in terms of the various sorts of posturing and priorities that they put forward, a lot of that has historical roots and ties back to things that were happening hundreds of years ago, but then in some cases as well, things related to the Soviet period of the country, which defied a lot of those historical norms while incorporating a chosen selection of them in interesting ways. Now, if you'd like to understand what's happening in that area better, if you'd like to just round out your understanding of what was happening in that part of Asia and Eastern Europe, Central Europe if you prefer, over the course of the past thousand years or so, consider picking up a copy of The Story of Russia by Orlando Figgis. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other news-focused podcast, One Sentence News, wherever you get your podcasts or at onesentencenews.com. And please feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and YouTube, and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright. And I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.